The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, taking a break from our study with Dr. Rogers in the book of Acts to look at the subject of the glory of God, living for God's glory, reading verses 23 through the end of chapter 10 and the beginning, the first verse of chapter 1, especially focusing on 1031 about living for the glory of God. Let us hear God's holy and inspired word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." In the winter of 1911, the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen became the first man to reach the South Pole, a feat that no man had ever accomplished. Amundsen was racing the British explorer Robert Falcon Scott. Scott and his crew froze to death in their attempt in the South Pole. When they finally were found, It was a sad state to see what had happened to that crew. But by contrast, Amundsen and his crew succeeded. And when they finally returned to their native Norway, it was with great fanfare. It was with great glory. Amundsen was a national hero to the newly formed nation of Norway. And Amundsen carried that glory for the rest of his life, the glory of that achievement. But was that glory sufficient to satisfy him? No, it was not. And that probably doesn't surprise you because you know that human glory passes away. The truth is that no earthly glory or joy is sufficient to carry any of us through life. No, instead, you and I are called to live 
for the glory of God. No matter how great the triumph, no matter how sweet the pleasure, no matter how rewarding might be the achievement, every human being was created to glorify God, and no other glory is adequate to serve as a substitute. Isaiah puts it this way in chapter 43, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. The Bible is saying, all believers, bring them in, my daughters and my sons. They were created for my glory. All people, every man, woman, and child in this room has been created by God for one primary purpose. We have been created for His glory. And we know that deep and lasting joy comes only from being what we were created to be, mirrors of God's glory, glorifying God, enjoying Him, reflecting that glory to those around us. You children know probably from learning the shorter catechism or the children's catechism that asks in question one, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Psalm 37 puts it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we know that's just not saying that we get all the desires of, the, of our hearts no matter what they are. No, but as we delight ourselves in the Lord, then our desires are accordance to God's will and He gives those desires to us. But if the primary purpose of your life is different than the, than the purpose of the one who made you, then you are on a dead-end street. I was thinking about the fact that we might get a snowstorm this year, a big one, and the snowblower, I would get the snowblower out of my garage, but what if my neighbor saw me in a bright, sunny day, and I was out in the yard with my snowblower, and I was trying to mow the lawn with it? They would think, oh, yeah, I guess he's got, gone off his rocker. You know, um, no, it might manage to cut the grass some a little bit if it were real long, but the snowblower is made to blow snow, to clear snow. It's not made for mowing the grass. And that may be a crude analogy, but so the glory of God, His praise, His glory is to be the primary aim of our lives. And don't we all know well enough that there are many other lesser glories that can take the place of the glory of God. Even things that are in and of themselves good and acceptable, to be successful in some way, to be prosperous, to have material things, to have a family, to get married, to cultivate friendships, to pursue a hobby, to work hard, to be a parent, to raise your children, to work at a business, to be well thought of. All these things are goals that are good in of, of themselves, but they fall woefully short if they are not put in their proper place, submitted to the overarching supremacy of living for the glory of God in every area of our lives, of seeking the glory of God first and foremost by knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, knowing the true God, the only God, and then submitting our lives to Him as we walk with Him day by day. Really, the, the message of this verse here in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one: whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. That's a summary of much of what the apostle has been saying, talking about this problem at Corinth, where the problem there was that there was a meat market where meat that had been offered to idols was then sold. And if you wanted to buy meat, you bought it there. But what if a Christian were invited to someone's home and the Christian knew that it didn't matter whether a meat was offered to an idol or not because an idol is nothing. But then what if somebody else, their conscience was weak, so to speak. In other words, they couldn't eat it because it, they thought it was sin. And Paul is actually saying here to limit your liberty for the sake of your brother, for the sake of someone else there. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's the whole context for this command to do all for the glory of God. Well, let's look at this verse in more depth. How does Scripture tell us that we are to glorify God? How do we live for His praise? And I would like us to look at that question in four main categories. The first is worship. We glorify God through worshiping Him, by loving Him. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your mind. How do you summarize God's glory? We might do it this way. That is his greatness, his excellence, his power, his beauty, his wisdom, his goodness, his worth, his perfection. All those summed up. That is the glory of God, the perfect character of God. And if you hear that summary, you may think, well, how do you glorify a God like that? Of such high, majestic glory. Well, the first and most obvious part of that answer is you praise him. You can't add to that glory. You worship him. You delight in him. You are supremely satisfied in him. You trust him. That's really what worship is all about. We went to an art museum in El Paso while we were there a week or two ago and took the nephews and nieces down there along with us, and we're looking at an exhibit of of Renoir and Rubens and other Dutch painters of the 17th century, and we went into this room, and there were guards around, and all of us tried to determine what were our favorite paintings. And that was, that was interesting. They were beautiful. What, what beautiful style, what beautiful colors and highlighting. What, what if I were to take my magic marker kit from my pocket and say, you know, I just want to improve on that a little bit. I think it needs to just be highlighted a little bit, maybe a little bit. No, the guard would have whisked me out. Everybody thought I was crazy. That's not the way you honor a painting like that. You don't add to it. What, what if somebody invites you over for a meal? and serves it up before you, how do you glorify the excellence of that meal? Do you slip into the kitchen and say, you know, I'm going to add some more spices to the stew, and I'm going to whip up some eggs on the side here? And No, you don't do that. That would be offensive. You glorify a perfect meal by eating and enjoying it, by feeling contented and leaning back in your chair and saying, ah, oh, that was delicious. That's how you glorify the meal. In other words, if it is your duty to glorify something infinitely beautiful and wonderful, then that is not a burden. It should be a pleasure. In fact, the higher your enjoyment, the more you are showing 
It is a treasure. You are giving it more glory in that sense. Worship is finding God and his glory as our highest treasure. And so we have to ask ourselves, if our goal is to glorify God, you have to ask, am I treasuring the Lord above everything else in my life? In fact, we could back up a step and say, treasuring God is fundamental to becoming a Christian and being a Christian. Yes, we emphasize rightly faith that becoming a Christian is by repentance and faith, trusting Jesus Christ to save us. But one major aspect of repentance in coming to Christ is acknowledging by nature, left to ourselves, we don't naturally delight in God's glory above everything else. We don't naturally seek God's glory above everything else. We know that we have sin in our hearts, and that throws us off from the glory of God. And so as we walk with Christ, we must learn to treasure Jesus Christ supremely. In fact, treasuring Christ is part and parcel with trusting Christ. It's tied into his very lordship. And if there's no treasuring of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, am I really trusting Jesus Christ in my life? And so we can ask ourselves, are there daily ways that I actively treasure God by worshiping him, praying to him, ascribing to him glory, maybe singing to him, thinking of him. You know how when two people fall in love, and you can see it when it happens in church here, and two people are starting to date and falling in love, and and they can't think of anything else. They can't stop thinking about ways to please each other and be together. Sometimes it almost seems like it arises and comes up to the element of worship. We actually could speak about that. Lovers almost worship each other in that sense. Well, think of our lives that way. The fact is there are many things that draw us away from the worship of our God. Jesus, in the parable of the soils, talks about the four kinds of soils and the seed sown, and one of the soils is the thorny ground, and the seed there begins to grow, but then it's choked. And he says it's choked by the pleasures and the cares of this world. Those are common ways in which our worship of God is choked. Things that we focus on that, that may be right in a way, but they dominate our lives. They become all-absorbing to us. Or the cares of this world, which we know we're commanded to cast upon the Lord, but they absorb us in a sense that it dulls our worship of God. What is it that robs your life of true worship? But secondly, we worship and glorify God through gratitude, closely related to praise. Praise is worshiping God for who he is. Gratitude is thanking him for what he's given to us. And so Ephesians 5 commands always giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the first thing that comes to your mind in this text. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. John Piper has a famous article out called How to Drink a Glass of Orange Juice to the Glory of God. It's interesting, isn't it? How do I do that? Well, it's being thankful for it mostly. Or there's a book out that many of you have read by Ann Voskamp called 1,000 Gifts in which this wife and mother tries to focus for an extended period of time in her life on 
writing down specific things she has to thank God for. And what, what a powerful exercise that is in her life in, in conforming her more to a worshipful, grateful attitude to her God. We are to thank God for his generosity to us in Christ. Think if your uncle was Bill Gates and he flew into town, said he wanted to see you and he flew in and he said, you know, John, I want to buy you a house, a new house, a really nice house. And, you know, drove you around to see some homes and wrote a check and bought you a house. And how would you respond to a rich rich uncle giving you a gift like that? Well, I hope you wouldn't try to pay him back and say, oh, Uncle Bill, you know, thank you. I'm going to send you $10 a week or $10 a month and, you know, pay you back. And I just feel so badly. What can I give you? I've got an old baseball card collection. How about if I bring that down for you? You could maybe trade those in. No, that would be offensive. The way you respond and glorify that free gift is by receiving it, that lavish and genuine gift. And that is no burden, It's a pleasure. It's not a hardship. And isn't that true for what God has given to us in Christ? He has lavished his love on us. We heard the choir singing, Behold, what what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. And that is what we are. We have this great salvation. We have a right relationship to the only true God. We have the forgiveness of all of our sins. We have the certainty of eternal life. What massive gifts the Father has given to us in Christ. And so glorifying Him is being grateful and living a life of daily thankfulness to God. But thirdly, we glorify God by obedience. We aim to glorify God by reflecting His glory to others by the way we live. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, these good works are not to be meritorious or aimed at earning salvation. We know that. But the Bible says that we will be producing good works. It's part of the fruit of saving faith, the obedience flowing from faith. When I taught science in high school, we did experiments using light, and one of them was taking and shining white light through a prism. And if you know, that refracts the light and it breaks it down its, into its rainbow of colors. I look at, at how the Father shines the light of Christ through those who trust in Him and, come, and good works come out of that. The prism, the, the various good works that believers carry out. It's not going about specified religious acts in order to somehow achieve salvation, to merit the forgiveness of sins. No, it's the overflow. It's from God's light shining into our light and then coming out in various ways. It's interesting, the scripture in Titus 2 speaks about Christians adorning the doctrine of our God and Savior. I was asking Patty about what what do we adorn? And the best idea I could come up with, the turkey, Christmas, Thanksgiving Day, Patty says, put these clementines around it, you know, before we carve it and put the parsley and things like that, and, and we're adorning it. And after we cut it all up and eat it, the adornment is still there because the main issue is not the adornment, right? The main issue is the turkey itself. And so we adorn the doctrine of our God 
The scriptures speak about us being the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. Christians are to be that aroma. There's there's the fragrance of Christ. It doesn't point to us. It points to God. We glorify God by our obedience, our obedience that is fueled by faith. I want you to think and try to reflect upon an area of your life which poses a special challenge to you in glorifying God. Maybe it's a tough work environment or school environment in which the pressure of your fellow employees or your fellow students pressures you into behaving in certain ways, doing certain things. Or maybe it's just driving around with the traffic around here, which is not as bad as some cities is, but still, it can be bad at times. And the temptation to anger and impatience and the failure to love drivers in other cars around you. Or maybe it's a difficult home situation with your children or your parents or your husband or wife. Maybe it's guarding yourself against sexual immorality in a sexually impure and corrupt world. And you're a college student or you're a young adult and you know what that environment is like. Whatever the situation might be, how is God calling you to cultivate glorifying Him through obedience, even in difficult situations? One of the most foremost elements of obedience is just loving others. Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called The Mark of the Christian, and his point is the main mark of the Christian and of a Christian's obedience is love. So we're to aim to glorify God by counting the cost of loving others. No doubt, God has purposes for each one of us to glorify Him more fully in our lives by Christ-like love for people around us, maybe people difficult to love. And isn't that the very thing that 1 Corinthians 10 addresses? There were problems in the Corinthian church. They were being divided about over this eating meat and whether to eat meat offered to idols or not. And Paul is essentially calling them to sacrificial love, and he's basically summarizing that by saying, glorify God, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you don't eat or don't drink, do it for the glory of God. The obedience of loving others is to be a powerful part of that, even if it's to the point of robbing of limiting my freedom so I don't offend someone else's conscience. John chapter 15, Jesus speaks about glorifying God. His disciples would glorify God by bearing much fruit. And it's interesting that a few chapters before that in John 12, he's just talked about the necessity for a seed to die to bring forth fruit, talking about his own cross. So we die and bring forth fruit, and that glorifies God. That's the Christ-like way, the cross-bearing way. And no wonder six times the gospel says that whoever loses his life will save it. It's the costliness of love as a way to glorify God. How is God calling you to glorify Him in your obedience? But our last category is trust. We glorify God by trusting in Him. And certainly, first and foremost, we trust Him for salvation. You can't glorify God at all, really, if you don't trust Him. 
whatever is not of faith is sin, the Scripture says. So the very first step in glorifying God is coming to a true faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But then, once you've come to Christ, you aim to glorify God by relying on Him for the power to follow Him and to obey Him and to reflect His glory to others more and more. How do we have the power to glorify God? We know it doesn't come from ourselves. The Bible tells us that we have this treasure, Jesus Christ, in jars of clay, in earthen vessels, so that the all-surpassing power is of God and not of us. We need the power that comes through Jesus Christ to glorify Him, and so we need to cultivate trust in Him, and that greatly glorifies Him. God is not glorified in our self-reliance. That is the way of the world, and that's common and normal for the world, but we get sucked into that. It's easy for us to be worldly in that way because the world acts that self-reliance is the best thing. Of course, self-reliance in its normal sense is fine, but I'm talking about self-reliance as opposed to and in contrast to reliance on Jesus Christ in a daily way. You and I need to avoid that. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Doesn't that cut through to our hearts? Do we desire to share the glory of God somehow? Isn't it, doesn't it go to our spiritual pride? You know that even preaching up here up front, there's always the temptation to pride. Even in our best acts, there's the temptation to pride. But we need to be glorifying God in our dependence on Him. And then one final aspect of this trust is glorifying God by trusting Him in difficulty. There are things in each of our lives, I'm sure, that we don't fully understand what God is doing. You know, in John 21, when the disciples saw the Lord, resurrected Lord, and Peter is restored, and Jesus talks to him and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus is talking to Peter about glorifying him, and he's talking to him about his death. And John, under inspiration, interprets that and says, this is about the glory of God. We can glorify God even in our dying. We can glorify God in deep suffering, in our perseverance. That's the goal of our lives, that God would use these pains and these awful trials as opportunities to walk in faith when the way ahead may be very dark, to trust in Him and to testify to others by our lives to the sufficiency of His grace. And even in that 2 Corinthians 1 kind of way, to let it be an opportunity to possibly comfort others with the comfort we have received of God. What a great arena is are the trials of our lives as an opportunity to trust the Lord and so bring Him glory. I was tempted to put this last point first because trust really stands at the beginning, but I'm putting it at the last for emphasis. Are you glorifying God 
more and more by your reliance on him for salvation as his power to live lives of obedient service and love and also to persevere in the suffering. There was a story in World Magazine this week about the life of a Cambodian refugee. She's now 68 years old. They didn't give her real name, but they called her Mali. Mali fled the terrible oppression and starving times of the Khmer Rouge reign of terror in Cambodia, in which two million people were killed. Her story is one filled with hardship and sorrows. Her husband was killed while they were in a labor camp. Then she watched her mother slowly starve to death during that time. And then when they were fleeing and trying to get to Thailand, she was separated from her two young sons. And for a time, she didn't know if she would ever see her boys again. But through all these difficulties and hardships, she came to trust in Jesus Christ in a refugee camp in Thailand. Eventually, she was granted refugee status in the USA, and she, she and her two sons settled along with 50,000 other Cambodian refugees in, in Southern California. But in 1988, she began reading the Bible and recording the readings that she would read for herself so she could play them back and listen to the Bible being read in Cambodia uh, for herself, for comfort and encouragement. And she did this for years. And at first, when she came to the United States, she didn't even want to go back to Cambodia ever. But after 12 years in the United States, the Lord opened a door for her to make trips there to help with missionary translating in that nation. But now, God has opened a door for thousands of Cambodians all over the world, many of them who are unable to read at all, to listen to her audio recordings of the Bible in their own language, online and on CDs. I read Molly's remarkable story and immediately thought, what a remarkable picture of how God uses his people to bring glory to his name as they trust in him, as they seek to follow him, as they live lives of worship and grateful obedience to him. And even and especially as they persevere in trusting him in the deepest hardships and sorrows of life. And so I say, what a privilege we have to do all for the glory of God. May you do so this week in whatever circumstances he has providentially placed you. May you live for God's glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for the great gift, the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, that he came, that he lived, that he loved us, that he died, that he rose, that he is ascended at the Father's right hand and now reigning on high. Thank you for the all-sufficient salvation you have poured out on us. And thank you for your calling to live for your glory. Help us to search our hearts, to look at our lives, to see where we can more fully live for your glory. Help us to not be so focused on ourselves or on our circumstances or on our hardships or even on the good things in life that we fail to worship you. But let us live lives of thankful worship and trusting praise to you. 
Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.